Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and today we're going to do a show that's going to look at the current situation going on with Mosul. And as many of you probably know, there's a big offensive going on. Um, A lot of stuff has been taking place in the last week or so. And today we have Nate Rabkin on the show to discuss this with us. So first of all, Nate, thank you so much for coming back on the Loopcast because you were a guest in our earlier days. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's, uh, It's a pleasure. And Nate is coming all the way from Israel for this recording, so I thank him for staying up with the time difference over there. And for our listeners, Nate is the managing editor of Inside Iraqi Politics, which is a political risk newsletter. And he has an undergraduate degree from Cornell University in Near Eastern Studies and an MA in Middle Eastern History from the University of Haifa. He also worked in Iraq for 21 months during the 2008 to 2011 period, first as a translator and interpreter for the U.S. military, and later as a human terrain analyst for the Pentagon. So he has on-the-ground experience as well as research experience on Iraq. So we're just so happy to have you back on the show, Nate. A pleasure to be here. Thank you. So why don't you give our listeners uh, overview of the developments that have been happening with Mosul and everything that has been taking place. Uh, okay. The Iraqi government uh, launched earlier this month uh, an offensive that is supposed to liberate Mosul, and uh, the Prime Minister Haider al Abadi has promised that uh, it will achieve its objective by the end of the year. Uh, it's primarily an offensive led by the Iraqi army, but there's also uh, Iraqi police, uh, also uh, indirect support from U.S. troops who are there to provide uh, artillery strikes and other kinds of uh, close-in support, uh, as well as the Kurdish Peshmerga, who are coming from the uh, the other side of the city from the north, and also uh, Shia militias uh, that are playing a role in the areas around the city, although uh, it seems they are not meant to enter the, the city center and the Turkish army that uh, is deployed north of the city and is providing support to the Peshmerga and also to uh, groups of Sunni volunteers uh, who are from Mosul, who you know, have, uh, have organized themselves with sort of Turkish training and support to try to play a role in this, uh, in this offensive. And so the two big questions on everyone's mind are, uh, how is this going to go on the ground fighting against ISIS? And then also, how will all of these different groups manage to uh, to work together, both to defeat ISIS and then to uh, administer and rebuild the city after the offensive is completed. And that right there is a great, great, great question, which I'm sure we're going to touch on a little bit later in the show because it is a very important topic. But first of all, do we have any idea why Mosul has been targeted first as opposed to Raqqa, which has been a very strong, you could say, capital for ISIS? Yes, and I think um, at some points in the past two years, uh, U.S. military planners were talking about maybe attacking Raqqa before Mosul, but uh, I wish I could remember who said this. Uh, 
proxy warfare goes at the timetable of the proxy. And so in Syria, uh, there are many different actors involved, uh, none of whom has made it their top priority to take back Raqqa. Whereas uh, in Iraq, the Iraqi government uh, really wants to take back Mosul, and the prime minister especially has been promising people for months now that uh, they would accomplish it this year. And so I think that just created the, the motivation that, that made it possible. And so uh, I think this was very much driven by uh, the Iraqi government and not by any uh, sort of grand coalition plan for how to take out ISIS in, uh, in the whole Iraq-Syria battle space. And you had mentioned in Syria that there's a lot of different proxies in the region and they're all vying for their own power or own goals. Looking at this further, we have Russia involved, we have the Syrian government, we have various militia groups. In your opinion, does this make Raqqa, as opposed to Iraq, more difficult for doing an offensive like we're seeing in Mosul right now? Oh, I mean, definitely. Uh, just as far as, uh, you know, Iraq has a national government that's recognized, uh, you know, internationally, even by countries that maybe have disagreements with it, but no one says it's not the legitimate, there's no country that says it's not the legitimate government of Iraq. And, you know, it has an agreement with uh, the United States and with many other countries to provide uh, assistance and training and air support and all of these things to the Iraqi military. And so even with all of the grittiness and the complexity of the militias and so on, and this dispute with Turkey about its role, that's still a lot more clear cut than the situation in Syria, where you have this Assad regime that is seen as illegitimate by many other uh, countries and actors. Yeah, you also have this Russian role that then makes it very complicated because you have multiple countries that don't get along doing airstrikes in the same space. Uh, it's really a much more complicated setup politically uh, in Syria, whatever the military differences may be. And what about this estimate that there are about 5,000 U.S. troops on the ground in Iraq as opposed to Syria? Do you think this has played a factor in the offensive basically taking place in Iraq now? Well, I think maybe the, uh, the order of things is the opposite, that uh, the reason there's U.S. troops in Iraq and not in Syria is that Iraq has this uh, legitimate, credible government that invited them in and is able to guarantee some level of uh, security for them as far as you know, making sure that they're not uh, targeted by these pro-Iranian militias or uh, that they don't suffer any of these kinds of, uh, of mishaps. Uh, whereas you know, Syria is just uh, such a, a more complicated picture, it's not even clear exactly who you would get permission from to operate there if you don't want to work with the Assad government. And at the starting of this talk, you touched on some of the major players that are involved in this offensive on Raqqa, uh, excuse me, not Raqqa, Mosul, we're talking about Raqqa earlier, but I was wondering if you could discuss the different players and give our listeners a bit of an idea of who each one is. Okay, so probably uh, the most significant player uh, is definitely the Iraqi army, or if you want, the Iraqi security forces, you know, including their, their federal police, uh, their counterterrorism service. They have a whole bunch of uh, special forces units that are, are participating in this. Uh, and, you know, for them, this is about restoring the credibility that they lost uh, when Mosul fell to ISIS in June of 2014. So this is their big test, their chance to show that uh, – 
you know, that they don't run away, that they're able to stay and fight, that they will, you know, protect uh, Sunnis in Mosul just like they protected Shia in other places further south in earlier fighting and really sort of restore their credibility. Then uh, probably the next most important force is the uh, Peshmerga, which is the Kurdish security force for the autonomous Kurdistan regional government uh, in northern Iraq. Uh, for them, this is also in some ways a chance to, uh, to showcase their capabilities. They uh, have developed a very good relationship with the U.S. military, with the U.S. government, and a good reputation for being a very effective force in the field against ISIS. Uh, but they have a complicated relationship with the Iraqi army, uh, partly because of uh, you know, Saddam's persecutions, which were, of course, led by the Iraqi army of, of that time, and also because of disputes about where the precise boundaries of the Kurdistan regional government are or should be. Uh, and so the uh, Peshmerga uh, are expected to not enter Mosul City. There's areas around Mosul that they have taken back from ISIS, but uh, the position of the Kurdistan regional government is, uh, for now, that they don't want to go into areas that have not been historically Kurdish, that haven't historically been part of Iraqi Kurdistan, uh, and that you know, they recognize that doing that would uh, only create more resentment. And so that seems to be kind of the, the arrangement between the army and the Peshmerga. But again, there doesn't seem to be an exact line in the sand that they've drawn about who will be where. So there's, there's potential for trouble there. Uh, then probably the next most important actor are these uh, Shia militias, uh, drawn primarily from southern Iraq. And for them, they also want to participate in this offensive, partly to um, show that they're important players, to show that they're part of the fight against ISIS. Uh, and also, in order to take back, there is a Shia, formerly was a Shia enclave in a place called Tel Afar, west of Mosul. Uh, it's a city hem inhabited primarily by Turkmen. Uh, they speak a Turkic language you know, related to Turkish. Uh, some of them are Shia, some of them are Sunni. Uh, the Shia ones were, of course, uh, expelled from their homes, and many of them were killed by ISIS. So the Shia militias are making it a priority to liberate uh, that town, which, of course, has generated a lot of concern among Sunnis in Mosul and in the, the broader province of Nineveh uh, because of the various uh, atrocities that have been committed by some of these Shia militia groups in uh, Anbar and other places where they've fought against ISIS in, in Sunni-majority territory. Uh, and then just to round it out, there's also local Sunni actors. So you have the, uh, the Ninua police force that's locally recruited and primarily Sunni. You also have uh, this force run by the former governor, Athil al-Mujaifi, the, the Turkish-trained volunteer force that has a very rocky relationship with the Iraqi government. Uh, and then you also have Sunni tribal volunteers who were recruited by the government as an alternative to uh, to former Governor Nujaifi's force. And what might the U prepared too, but those are the main ones. Oh, thank you. And what might the U.S. role be in all of this, if any? So, uh, I think there's uh, two important things that the U.S. is doing, and probably the most important is just the sort of direct support it's providing as far as the airstrikes, the logistics, the command and control, uh, the advice to the particularly Iraqi army and Peshmerga forces uh, on the ground. Uh, and then the second thing is uh, a sort of uh, advisory role in, uh, I wouldn't even say coordinating necessarily among all these forces, but at least deconflicting their efforts so that they don't step on each other's toes and make it uh, impossible to, to complete the mission. 
And so I think the U.S. is one of the few actors that has uh, – it's not necessarily trusted by everyone. Certainly a lot of the Shia militias don't want anything to do with the, uh, the U.S. military. But for the most part, the main players, you know, the army, the Peshmerga, these Turkish-trained militias uh, are all in some degree of contact with the U.S. military and definitely take into consideration what you know, the U.S. military thinks uh, is the right way for them to proceed here. And going to the other side of the line, we have ISIS then. Do we know how many ISIS fighters are estimated to be inside Mosul? The estimates range uh, a lot, but I think uh, the estimates I've seen and find most credible are in the somewhere in the thousands. You know, I couldn't say is it you know, 3,000, 5,000, 10,000, but somewhere in that, in that range probably. And what kind of military equipment and arms do they possess to fight against the opposition forces that are trying to get them out of Mosul? So uh, they do have some modern military equipment, including tanks and some uh, anti-tank missiles. Uh, But I think their stocks of those were never very great and have been depleted a lot through airstrikes. And also it's uh, it's hard for them to deploy heavy equipment like tanks and artillery because uh, the moment they bring it out into the open, it becomes very vulnerable to U.S. airstrikes. And so what I think people are expecting and what we've seen so far is that their defensive tactics will rely more on a very heavy use of improvised bombs, especially these big improvised truck bombs or improvised bombs that you know, fill up a, a whole building, maybe you know, take out a city block kind of thing. Uh, and then also a network of tunnels that they've built uh, probably inside Mosul. Definitely so far they've already been uncovered in various villages on the way to Mosul. And so those sort of give them these, uh, these underground bunkers that they can hide in. And then, you know, once a village is entered by whether it's the Iraqi army or the Peshmerga, they can pop out at close range from those tunnels and try to ambush them even from behind. So it, it's primarily uh, when we look at ISIS's military strength, it primarily comes from these unconventional sorts of weapons and tactics. And is ISIS still able to receive supplies now that there's this offensive going on or are they completely cut off? So, uh it seems that they're not completely cut off, that there are still ways to get in and out of Mosul. Uh, even though it's surrounded by almost you know, 270 degrees, but there's still ways out into the desert uh, that then connects through ISIS territory to ISIS territory in Syria. Although you know, it's, uh, it, it's not a route that goes on like major highways. You know, it's a lot of like desert back roads, unpaved kind of things. But there are ways to get in and out of the city, and presumably ISIS is able to at least some extent to bring in uh, more fighters, more explosives, and these kind of things into Mosul from uh, from further western Iraq and from Syria. And could this also be a possible network for some of the leaders to leave Mosul? We're hearing reports that some of the major figures of ISIS have fled the city and gone elsewhere. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I would think that uh, one of the hardest things to stop would be just a few people, you know, leaving clandestinely. You would need a very, very uh, tight security setup to prevent that. But I'm also not sure uh, how many of the senior leaders really are in Mosul to begin with. I think uh, Iraqi commentators especially tend to sort of imagine ISIS as a like uh, some sort of reincarnated version of Saddam Hussein's Iraq with you know, like a presidential palace and a big entourage. And I think actually a lot of the ISIS leaders uh, have become used through many years of life sort of as underground terrorists 
to living in safe houses and changing where they stay every few days. And so I'm not sure that there is this like tight leadership uh, headquarters center in Mosul that then evacuates as a group to Syria. I think it's more diffuse than that probably even to begin with. You mentioned the Kurdish forces a little bit ago and this delicate relationship with the Iraqi government and, and their forces. And I know there's this worry that if the Kurds get highly involved and potentially liberate Mosul because they've had some great battle victories against ISIS in the past, there's this fear by the Iraqi government that they might actually stay and attempt to incorporate Mosul into a larger Iraqi Kurdistan. So I was wondering if we could discuss this because I could see where this would be a great worry on the Iraqi government side and a potential victory on the Kurdish side. Yes, so I think uh, some of these worries are a little bit overstated, but the basic issue is is definitely there. Uh, I don't think that anyone in the Kurdistan regional government uh, even dreams of conquering all of Mosul and incorporating it into uh, Kurdistan. It's a very big city that they've never had control of. It's never had a majority Kurdish population. Uh, it would be a very difficult thing to do, even just militarily. Uh, and it's not clear that it would be worth it at the end of the day to do that just for the reward of having this large city, most of whose population is sort of hostile to, uh, to the Kurdistan regional government to begin with. But there are a few neighborhoods of Mosul that have historically had a Kurdish majority. There are many Kurds who are from there. And uh, maybe more importantly, the Kurds do have this, the Kurdistan regional government based in your bill has this close relationship uh, at least on security and economic matters with uh, Turkey that has its own you know, local Sunni allies. And so I think the uh, thing to watch for is not so much the Kurds taking all of Mosul as the Kurds trying to use their military control of these uh, outlying districts of the province uh, to the north and east and even the west of Mosul as sort of levers to uh, empower pro-Turkey Sunni politicians in the aftermath as opposed to pro-Baghdad ones. Uh, and that's something that could be destabilizing, even if it doesn't lead to a, a shootout for control of the city. Do you think potentially this offensive on Mosul and the Kurdish forces working in tandem with the Iraqi government could actually help heal some of the differences between the two nations? Well, I think there's some hope of that. And you do definitely see, at least as far as the media coverage, that they do seem like to people, the media coverage presents it as if both sides are fighting the same fight. So you watch Kurdish TV, uh, they try not to make fun of the Iraqi army the way they did in some previous offensives, you know, which didn't go so well. Uh, they try to give a sort of positive coverage of we're working together to, to fight ISIS and same with uh, coverage of the Peshmerga's role in most mainstream Iraqi TV networks, Arabic networks, I mean. Uh, but uh, I don't think that that's necessarily going to lead to lasting healing, uh, just because I think uh, there's so much uh, distrust on both sides, and also um, the the issues have now become part of this broader sort of regional struggle. And so I think, uh, you know, the the Kurdistan regional government uh, is now rather closely aligned uh, both with Turkey and the U.S 
while you know the government in Baghdad uh, is composed of many Shia Islamist parties that want Iraq to be closer to Iran, or even if they don't want Iraq to be closer to Iran, are very suspicious of Turkey and the U.S. So it's become bigger than just an Arab versus Kurd issue. It's become part of this uh, this broader struggle. I think that makes it just so much harder to uh, to imagine like a long term reconciliation. Looking closer at the Shiite militias that are involved in this offensive, we have the Popular Mobilization Unit, which is a group of Shiite militias who are involved. And I was wondering if we could look at this and and discuss the implications, because as you mentioned earlier in the talk, there are rumors about targeting Sunni civilians. And um, yeah, just could you discuss that somewhat? Yeah. Yeah, so the uh, the confusing thing about the popular mobilization forces, uh, also called in Arabic the Hasht, the Hasht al-Shabi, uh, is that it's an umbrella group. Uh, after ISIS captured Mosul and other central Iraqi cities in 2014, the Iraqi government uh, made this call for volunteers, and the way they chose to organize the volunteers was by uh, political parties or political figures. And so each uh, party participating in the Iraqi government, essentially the Shia parties, although there's a few Sunni figures involved too, uh, recruited its own volunteers, organized them as it saw fit, and then received weapons and uh, money to pay salaries from the Iraqi government. And so that means that it's a, uh, a coalition of militias rather than a single united force with a common chain of command. They are all nominally... Uh, loyal to the Iraqi government. They all at least pay lip service to the idea that they work for the elected government, that they take their orders from the prime minister's office. But in practice, they uh, manage their own affairs as far as uh, how they choose to structure their units, who they make their commanders, how they discipline their men. And so uh, part of the drama going forward here in Mosul is not just will the popular mobilization units participate, because it's clear that they are and they will, but which ones will will participate and where in the province will they end up? And that's certain to be a, a cause of more uh, yeah, acrimony and, and debate, uh, not just with uh, local Sunnis, but also among these Shia groups who don't necessarily agree on what their, their common strategy is here. So as we all know, sectarianism has played a huge role in Iraq's past. In your opinion, do you think we're going to see issues of sectarianism during this battle as well as afterwards? Or can this potentially run smoothly and, and be done in a polite, is that's the best way of saying it, a polite manner between all these different groups? Well... It's definitely an issue in the sense that it's it's something that people are thinking about. It's something that people are talking about. Uh, it's even something people are fighting about. Uh, but no, I think there is a potential that this could end with uh, with people feeling better about the state of Sunni-Shia relations than they did when it started. Uh, I'm not saying that's certain. I'm not even saying that's the most likely outcome. But I think there is some hope that, uh, you know, given how bad the, the feelings have become, over these past two years with the fight against ISIS, uh, that just the the images of these you know, Sunni tribal volunteers fighting alongside uh, Shia militias, the army that has many Sunni and Shia soldiers fighting together as one force, uh, you know, and the, the final outcome of liberating Mosul from ISIS could be kind of a healing moment uh, 
but only if there aren't a lot of uh, ugly incidents along the way. We tend to focus on a lot of the military or security aspects of issues in national security and international security. And we don't always look at the humanitarian side of instances like what's going on with Mosul. So I was wondering if we could look at that a bit and also address these reports that ISIS has been using human shields in their attempt to stay on top of this battle. Yeah. Yeah, so this is definitely uh, something to watch. Uh, in previous military operations against ISIS in Iraq, uh, what's usually happened is that cities have been destroyed in the course of the battles. And uh, what I think many people believe is that this is a deliberate strategy on the part of ISIS, that they plant bombs everywhere, they set up ambushes everywhere, and the message they want to send uh, to Sunni civilians you know, in their territory and beyond is if you side with the government, you have to know that we're not going to leave, we're going to fight, and these cities will be destroyed. The only way you can get rid of us is if you're willing to see your own city you know, demolished in the, in the combat. Uh, and so as a result of that you know, method of warfare, uh, what usually happens is there's a massive outflow of refugees uh, during each of these battles. The only exception is uh, the fight for Tikrit, uh, where... It seems that ISIS uh, basically withdrew from the city, or at least withdrew most of their forces and left behind only a small force that didn't do that much damage. But Ramadi, Fallujah, Jalala, there's a number of cities that were really just terribly, uh, terribly damaged in the course of their liberation. And I think uh, the Iraqi military's kind of strategy for Mosul is they're hoping to go faster than they've gone in, uh, in some of these previous battles. And they're also actually advising uh, residents to stay in their homes. Uh, and I think that's partly based on the realization that these past outflows of refugees were very difficult to deal with. It almost created a kind of uh, distraction or a burden on military forces. And also that uh, the Iraqi military and Iraqi government in general were very poorly prepared to deal with these refugee outflows. And so you had a great number of people who were, you know, sleeping on the ground for weeks on end. Uh, you also had, you know, convoys leaving these places that ISIS still controlled. Decisions had to be made very quickly about whether to, you know, whether it was a convoy of ISIS militants that should be bombed or a convoy of refugees that should be allowed to pass. Uh, and so the, the danger is that the Iraqi government, by encouraging people to stay in their homes, may be setting, uh, setting Mosul up for you know, a sort of more suffering as there's all these people who remain behind in an active war zone. Uh, it's a very hard thing to, to predict, but uh, they're, they're trying something different here than what they've done in the past, and we'll, we'll see how it goes. So is this where ISIS is getting these human shields, then? Are they taking people out of their homes and using them? Uh, there definitely have been a lot of reports of that, and it, it certainly is the kind of thing ISIS would do. Uh, I, I'm not sure, uh, yeah, I, I can't say exactly how widespread it is or honestly how effective it is just given you know, the, the conditions of, uh, of combat there. But uh, I, I think uh, this issue has sort of been played up a lot in the Iraqi media. I'm sure that there 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 is a lot of evidence that suggests that ISIS uses human shields. Uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is that uh, I don't think that really will deter the Iraqi army from going after them. 
yeah, I mean, the Iraqi army doesn't want to kill the human shields, but they are going to get ISIS one way or another. And with what you mentioned here about ISIS tactics of completely demolishing a town or city if they're not going to be able to keep it as their own, does the Iraqi government at all have a plan to deal with the aftermath if if Mosul is completely destroyed and, and you have all these people that may or may not survive, the civilians, for instance, what then? What what are the alternatives afterwards, after this is done? Yes. So uh, the truth is the problem begins even before this is done, uh, when you have active combat going on and refugees coming out. And, yeah, they try to go to the Kurdistan regional government or to neighboring provinces of, uh, of federal territory. And, of course, the local authorities there are very suspicious because – they say, look, you just came from ISIS territory. We don't know who you are. So uh, the first thing is they'll set up some sort of temporary camps that will be um, almost like detention centers, likely. Uh, and they'll try to screen people and try to you know, determine if there are any ISIS infiltrators trying to escape with these, uh, these fleeing refugees. Uh, and then yeah, the next step is, of course, trying to find more permanent housing for them and then trying to rebuild the city. Uh, unfortunately, Iraq is also undergoing a, a major uh, financial crisis right now, or at least a, a budget shortfall, in which just uh, because of the, the drop in world oil prices, even though their oil production remains high and is actually growing, uh, they do not have enough cash on hand to meet all of the obligations they made in past years, let alone to uh, – to pay for a very expensive reconstruction of a large city. And so I suspect that the Iraqi government um, is very much depending on international help to rebuild the city or to rebuild whatever damage is done. Uh, and uh, I fear that they are expecting more help from the international community in this regard than they're likely to get. So this question is going to be a little bit looking into the future, but also considering the current situation. And I was wondering, does Baghdad have the forces necessary to not just take Mosul, but to also hold it for the time being? Well, I guess the question may be not so much um, the quantity of forces as the quality, and I think it is an open question, that one of the reasons that ISIS was able to take Mosul is that the Iraqi state was rather ineffective at uh, fighting ISIS back when ISIS was just a, uh, an underground insurgent group. Uh, and there were a lot of uh, weaknesses in the Iraqi security forces, in the Iraqi police, and also in local administration in Mosul uh, that sort of allowed ISIS to play this role as a, a kind of mafia group that was able to siphon a lot of money out of government projects in the city and in neighboring areas. Uh, and there's not a lot of strong evidence that the Iraqi government um, has a fundamentally different approach this time. And I think what they're hoping for is more uh, the sort of determination of people inside the city not to let ISIS come back. Um, I guess the, the bottom line to answer the question is I think people should expect more trouble, continued trouble in Nineveh. I mean, it's, it's, it will be much better off uh, once ISIS is gone, for sure. But that doesn't mean that uh, everything will be calm and there won't be continued political strife and violence afterwards. I think that uh, it will take a long time 
for Mosul to go back to being a peaceful place. And it's going to be an extended process. Uh, and I think that the Iraqi government has, uh, let's say, a, a sober awareness that this is a very difficult thing to predict. And so uh, we should expect them to try a couple of different approaches in Mosul and in Nineveh province over the next few years until they find one that works. And you mentioned over the next couple of years, do you think this offensive is going to be one of these instances that all of the players involved are in for the long haul, or could this go fairly quickly and then having an instance where maybe potentially ISIS tries to come back and there's this back and forth of securing Mosul? ISIS will try to come back for sure. Uh, and there may also be other groups that won't call themselves ISIS, but that will appeal to the same uh, base of support that ISIS had and will use similar kind of jihadi tactics. Uh, as for the players staying for the long haul, uh, this is sort of the opposite of uh, some other places in the world where there were you know, humanitarian interventions that then... Uh, yeah, afterwards you go, the, the players who intervened go home and it goes back to the way it was before. Here, most of the players involved uh, intend to stay and they have very different ideas about what they're going to do with it at the end. So uh, I, I think the concern is less that uh, the players go home and more that they have a falling out afterwards. And so that you may see uh, probably not you know, direct conflict between the army and the Peshmerga, but definitely these different players supporting different local actors. And so uh, there will be a lot of disputes about who's going to be in charge of security in these you know, rural villages outside of Mosul and maybe even inside Mosul itself. Uh, and I would expect that to be a, a very messy process that, that will take a while to, to sort out. And so even if you know, the offensive goes well, and I fully expect it to, you know, take back Mosul, maybe not by the end of the year, as Prime Minister Abadi has promised, but yeah, at some time in the next few months, uh, there will be continued low-level violence, if not with ISIS, then with other actors in and around Mosul, I expect for you know, a year or more to come. So lately, in the press and on the news, we're seeing and hearing a lot of hypotheses on this potentially being the beginning of the end for ISIS. I'm a little bit dubious on this topic, but I would like to hear your thoughts that if this offensive works, what does this mean for ISIS and its leadership in the long run? Well, it, it will be a big black eye for them. Uh, really the way they came onto the world stage was by conquering Mosul, and it's you know, the biggest city they control. And it'll also be the last provincial, it's the last uh, provincial capital in Iraq that they control. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're gone and finished, but it probably means that they're going back to being, at least in Iraq, uh, much more of this sort of underground guerrilla organization that uses a combination of you know, extreme brutality and sort of mafia tactics to control things behind the scenes and in areas that are beyond uh, the main government centers. Uh, Unfortunately, I don't think it means that they just uh, you know, disappear, go home, go to Syria. I think uh, the ISIS leadership and even a lot of the rank and file 
are people who, you know, they, they fought the Americans, they fought the Iraqi government. They're very used to operating in these difficult conditions and to thinking of themselves as these underground guerrilla fighters. And even to the extent that the sort of old guard that fought through that past decade of, of violence and may have been killed or will be killed in the course of this battle, uh, they have relatives, they have friends, they have people they've trained. So, uh, as Prime Minister Abadi uh, often says, uh, he says, we will liberate Mosul and that will be the end of ISIS in Iraq militarily. But it doesn't mean the end of the ISIS security threat. The, he and the Iraqi security uh, apparatus fully expect that we'll continue to see ISIS bombings, ISIS ambushes, ISIS raids uh, going forward. And that's something that even if you deal with it very professionally and thoroughly and, and well, uh, just in the nature of it, takes years to, to fully stamp out. To wrap up our discussions here at the Loopcast, when time is permitting, we like to give our guests a moment to potentially touch on something we might not have touched on during our discussion, or if they have final thoughts. So I wanted to hand the floor over to you. So I guess just the one issue that I think might be on a lot of listeners' minds uh, and that we didn't get a chance to touch on yet is this issue of the Turkish presence. And I know there have been a lot of people saying that uh, Turkey sees Mosul as part of its territory. Maybe Turkey will send its army to take Mosul or to fight against uh, the Shia militias for it. I think these fears are exaggerated, but it does seem that Turkey wants to have some sort of influence on the politics of Mosul after its liberation and that it sees having this military base in Kurdish-held territory north of the city where it's training this Sunni volunteer militia as a way of maintaining that influence. And this has, uh, depending on how you see it, either provoked uh, Shia militias or led Shia militias to, to use it as an excuse to indulge in a lot of uh, very threatening, very menacing rhetoric towards Turkey. Uh, and so what we should expect to see uh, going forward is not so much a, an army-on-army -army clash between the Turkish military and anyone else, but more uh, continued political tensions and maybe even uh, some sort of low-level clashes, not a battle for the city, but uh, you know, attacks on Turkish uh, military uh, forces in, in Kurdish territory there by these Shia militias. I think that's very uh, possible and even likely, not so much during this Mosul offensive, but in the aftermath. If Turkey doesn't withdraw its forces right away, I think this is a very appealing way for these Shia militias to maintain their relevance. That when people in Iraq tell them, uh, okay, we've defeated ISIS, now it's time to put down your arms, they'll say, oh no, we need to keep our weapons because Turkey is occupying our territory and we have to fight against the Turks. Uh, and so even without uh, a Turkish military adventure in Mosul, Turkey is still uh, setting itself up for a lot of trouble in its relationship with Iraq going forward. Well, Nate, thank you so much for coming back on the show. I know it's been a while since we last had you on, but I really appreciate you spending the time with us as well as lending your knowledge on Iraq and this situation. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you, and I'm sure our listeners and all of us will continue to watch what's taking place and see where this all goes.